I'm James Hahn II. And I'm Mark LaCour. And you're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast, brought to you by Tribe Rocket Inc. and Modal Point. Again, Mark. Yep, again. Two great uh, companies. Two fantastic companies. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Here we are at episode number 68, and I'm fired up. I'm fired up for this episode. Mark, you got my GTD running smoothly, and we are fully prepared for a great show. Yeah, and this is going to be one of many great shows, so everybody stay tuned. We got some really cool stuff in the works that will be announced this year. Yeah, and you saw some pretty cool stuff yesterday at the LNG conference, so why don't you fill us in? God, I mean, talk about an awesome conference. So um, a big shout-out to Sophia out there, uh, who uh, CWC put this on. Um, I learned so much yesterday. I must have 40 pages of notes. Um, you know, one of the things that's important for, for our business and, and for anybody that's in the industry is to make sure you always spend time learning, and this is a great conference to learn. And the other thing, James, that was so cool, there was I watched multi-million dollar deals go down on the show floor. Wow. Wow. A, a nape deal for the LNG world. Yeah. So they were, they were buyers and sellers there. And I saw some deals being made. And it's like, man, this reminds me so much of the 90s when I used to, you know, you go to OTC and you'd see people with POs and, and ink and deals. And it was just, it was awesome. But for me, the biggest thing was a learning experience. Like I knew we had a bit of a glut globally in the LNG market, but I had no idea how big a glut. And that sounds like it's bad, but it's actually driving innovation. Um, at yesterday evening, we did four roundtables where we, it's almost like speed dating, where we sat for 15 minutes at the table and we discussed as a team some of the challenges to LNG industry, like how do you lower cost, um, how do you increase consumption. And then the bell would ring and we'd go to another table and we had another problem we worked on. So I was sitting there with some of the, the brightest minds in the LNG market in the world and talking about ways to fix their problems. And it was just, it was just awesome, great event. Wow, that's fantastic. I saw uh, you put out a tweet. It was a presentation from Anova LNG. It looks like they're trying to get some support for a petition they have going on. Yeah, so the, their, um, their Brownsville project is uh, in the port of uh, Brownsville. Is, um, there's been some environmental activists um, trying to st- stop this project going through. And so I think it's pretty cool. They have an online petition. You can go sign. And, you know, if you're pro-jobs, pro-prosperity, whether you live in that part of the uh, world or not, go sign up for this. Help, help um, Anovo actually get this project through so all these jobs get created. Yeah, so now that you say that, I'll put a pretty link together. <laughs> That's the plug-in. It's not just that gorgeous. Um, Anova, it'll be triberocket.com forward slash Anova, and so it'll be A-N-N-O-V-A. Let's give some shout-outs, Mark, because you just told me that you had lunch with one of the guys that hit me up on LinkedIn. Uh, that would be uh, Ebosa. Ebosa, with a D. <laughs> uh, uh, Idosa. And I'm always stopping to try to get the last name right, Obaseki. Yeah, big shout out to Idosa. Him and I had lunch um, earlier and just great, smart uh, uh, guy. I mean, just, you know, looking out there to make a hustle. So we're going to see what we can do from Modal Point's point of view to help him out. But, um, you know, big fan of the show, big fan of what you and I have been doing, James. Um, you know, very proud to be here in the U.S. and I was ready, ready to get down. He's just got out of school, so he's ready to get down and go to work. I love it. And then also shout out to Nick Moore. Reservoir and analyst at Newfield, he was he was saying some really good things about Melanie's podcast. And just so that everyone to clarify, because I get a lot of messages sometime and they say, "Hey, you accidentally published the career show to the This Week podcast, you know, channel." And I do that on purpose every now and again 
so that people, so that the whole audience can get value. And I thought that Melanie's interview on how to get a position with LinkedIn should be heard far and wide. So I'm really glad I did that. Yeah, it definitely crosses boundaries, right? It's it's anything like that that uh, we produced for one show. If we think it's beneficial for our other show's audience, we're going to cross-promote. Definitely. And also a big, big, huge shout-out for your boy, Mike, Michael Fry. Yeah, Michael, congratulations. Welcome to the podcast family. Um, it's so awesome to see what you've done. And I've listened to a little bit of your first episode, and you rocked it, brother. Uh, you and Dallas have nailed it. You know, We're looking really forward to your success. However, however, <laughs> however, I'm not quite sure that uh, saying you're the number one for oil and gas professionals, I don't, I'm not sure if the data would support that, James. What do you think? I think, uh, Michael, Michael and Dallas, y'all have about 145,000 downloads to go before you can claim to be the number <laughs> one or the number one podcast for oil and gas professionals. That's what the data says. I'm just, I'm just going off the data. Just saying. Right. <laughs> 100% support both y'all for doing this. We're looking forward to your success. And you know what? If y'all catch up with us, that's that's awesome too. Yeah, yeah. Catch up with us, surpass us. That's all. It's it's all I've ever dreamed of is just a lot of amazing people crushing it. And I can tell from y'all listening to the show that you you got the model down and you're 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 doing well just right out the gate. So that's awesome. All right, let's jump into the stories, Mark. We got an update on a story that we'd say we continue to follow and shout out to you for the Instapaper premium account because I was able to go in there and search and find an update um, on this whole midstream bankruptcies. So midstream gathering agreements targeted by recent oil and gas bankruptcies. This was on Lexology a couple weeks ago, but it's a really detailed update. Yeah. So this is a this is this can be a game changer. So if you're on the finance side, if you're on the legal side, if you're in the contractual side of midstream, you need to read this. So basically, we've talked about this before. Sabine Oil and a Magnum Hunter um, have challenged the contractual obligations they made with uh, uh, pipeline companies. And so what, what what this is boiled down to is this actually went to the courts. And and the 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 nuance here, the thing you have to understand, is that uh, a bankruptcy court in New York says that, that Sabine has the right to reject two of their contracts, two of the gathering agreements, because um, the, um, the court says that the court believes that the, 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 the key point here is, does the agreement run with the land or run with the company that signed it, right? Mm-hmm. And so the courts kind of avoided that issue because if it runs with the land, then there's really not much legal uh, ways for the um, EMP companies to get out of these contracts. If it runs with the company, then there's ways for them to get out based on uh, common bankruptcy um, uh, rulings in the past. So um, it, this this is this can be a literally a game changer in the midstream industry. And if people haven't heard our earlier shows, basically the way pipeline companies make money is they find a constraint somewhere, somewhere where they need transport. They go out and they sign these long-term agreements with um, producers, and that long-term agreement then allows them to finance the capex infusion you need to build a pipeline. And so, you know, if you sign a 5, 10, 20 year agreement and you have a multiples of those, that's that's the the what you use to go get capital to build the pipeline. Now once the pipeline's built, you're not they're not making money yet. They have to ha- fulfill all these agreements and then at some point in the future they break even and they start making money. So if the courts allow these operators to get out of these long-term contracts, it's going to fundamentally change the pipeline industry in in the US. 
So what was the conclusion here that they drew in this, or did they just kind of set the stage and in, in, is there any precedent yet, or where are we at today? So it's, it's a non-binding analysis on whether it's run with the land. So basically what the court did is said, you know what, this is such a big issue, we're going to sidestep it. We know that whether this uh, is a tied to land or not is the major issue, and we're going to let a higher court decide on that. So that's that's where it is now. So this is a, a story that we need to stay on top of because um, depending on which way higher courts rule on this, this like I said, this could be a, a, a just a topsy-turvy thing for the midstream industry in North America. All right, great. We will continue to track that. And then let's move over to China because this is a very interesting story around China's Rust Belt revamp leaves millions of jobs at risk. Lots of commentary around coal and so forth. So break it down. Yeah, so... Um, China, if people don't know, most of their energy comes from coal, and coal is, is is can be so coal natively is a very dirty fuel to burn, right, for the environment. Um, there's ways to clean it up, but that there's a cost there. So this is in a, a section of China um, called Shenex, um, and it's it's kind of in the middle of the country, and it's it's where most of their coal reserves are, and there's hundreds and hundreds of coal mines, both private mines, and then in the last couple of years, the governments have been buying the private mines and turned them into government mines. Now, what's happening is, because oil and gas is so cheap right now globally, and because China has such a huge problem with pollution, especially air pollution, China is getting away from using coal and, and switching to natural gas for their for their electricity, electrical power plants. And so there's been a decline in the amount of coal that China uses itself. Then globally, because of the cheap oil and gas, there's a decline in the export trade of coal, and, and that was a big driver for years in, in China. So you're having this whole area whose entire um, economic existence dependent on coal go downhill. And so people are losing their jobs. The local economies are failing. Um, it's in, and it's the same thing that happened here in the U.S. You know, like in areas like Kentucky um, in the in the late 70s and the early 80s, right, where there was a lot of coal mining, and then we quit using coal, and people lost their jobs and factories shut down. A very interesting line here. Z's government has pledged to set aside up to a billion yuan to help resettle about 1.3 million coal workers and about a half a million employees in the steel industry. That is a massive migration. Yeah, I think it's yen, actually. Um, it's um, but yeah, that's a massive migration. But now the thing that's different about China is they're a communist government, right? So the government actually can do this. Instead of trying to figure out private enterprise, the government can step in, move people, um, actually create jobs. And so you know, the Chinese government's looking at this and trying to mitigate um, the decline in the coal revenue. They will be able to mitigate it somewhat. They're not going to be able to mitigate it completely. Now, for the actual employees, the, the, the most dangerous the people that are in the most danger are the actual coal miners. They, those job skills aren't transferable. Everybody else in that industry, the accountants and the HR people and the um, you know, safety people and the project managers, all those job skills are transferable to other industries. But the actual coal miners, which are actually probably the ones that are um, you know, enjoying the least amount of prosperity in the coal mine, are the ones that are in the most danger. Well, you can never celebrate when certain people fall on hard times. However, them getting away from coal is a fantastic news for people who breathe air in in China. Yeah, and and all over the world, right? It's it's you're right, James. I we don't ever like to see anybody lose their jobs and to suffer. Um, but getting away from coal globally is something that we need to do. And and you know, China's is um, a bit late to the game compared to the U.S. and to Europe. 
but ahead of the game compared to a lot of other countries. Um, and because they're so large, it's them getting away from coal is going to make a much bigger impact to the environment in a, in a good way. In a good way. Moving from China to South Africa, we've got a three-part series that we're going to just run through as one. It's very interesting. Energy Global puts out such fantastic content. I just I got to reach out to the editor there and say thanks because uh, we always get great stuff to talk about from them. And it's South Africa's Energy Diversification Parts 1, 2, and 3. So let's just run through this. Yeah, this, this is really great stuff, which, by the way, anybody that's listening that likes to read paper magazines, you can actually go to my website and go to, uh, click on the uh, Learn About Oil and Gas, and you can actually sign up for this exact magazine for free on my website and, and, and uh, you know, 20 more. So um, um, this is a good story about how – we were just talking about coal. Uh, this is a good story about how South Africa needs to diversify its energies. Most of its energy comes from coal. Um, you know, around 70, 75 percent comes from coal. And they have oil and gas, which is much better for the environment and actually cheaper in the long run. But they're they're working to diversify that energy mix. So um, they have shale reserves. You know, we talked about earlier. Somebody asked if there's is there is there shale anywhere else in the world? Yeah, <laughs> in a lot of places. Um, they have natural gas and they have oil, but they the, they don't have the technology and the infrastructure to switch over from coal overnight. So the first part of the articles is they talk about the dependence on coal and and why. Um, how it got started in history. The second part of this article is they start talking about liquids. Now, one of the things that you can do is, and, and we do this here in the U.S., is um, something called CTL, which is coal to liquid. You can actually convert coal to a liquid that you can burn in an electrical power plant. And that liquid inherently is much cleaner for the environment. But there's a cost to that, right? So South Africa is actually one of the leaders in CTL um, but because they have such large coal reserves and they don't have the infrastructure to get oil and gas out of the ground. So they're one of the leaders in CTL, which means they've actually been able to do it cheaper because they do such a, hard, a large volume of it. So the second part of this article is talking about uh, turning coal to liquids, using that to generate electricity, and then also the demand for oil. And so um, because they have oil and gas reserves, you wouldn't think they would have to import oil and gas, but they do import oil and gas, just like Mexico does. You know, Mexico and South Africa both have enough reserves to, to feed their own need, but they can't get it off the ground. So the second part is talking about the importation um, of oil and gas, even though they have the reserves and the development of the reserves. And then the third part uh, of this article really, really goes deep into what's needed in the future uh, as far as not just infrastructure to get oil and gas out of the ground, but infrastructure to move it around. So think pipelines and then infrastructure uh, projects to actually turn it into usable stuff. So think refineries. So South Africa is on the right path. They have the right natural resources. Um, like a lot of uh, parts of Africa, um, a lot of this is going to depend on the government and the government's ability to pull things off effectively. Um, but they're they're moving down the right route. So it's going to be interesting to see when the refineries come online and they quit importing oil and gas, what it does to their economy. It's actually going to spur their economy up. How much do they need to start producing in order to stop importing? Um, so they're heavy into diesel, like most of their commercial and residential fleet are diesel vehicles, not gasoline like we do. So they need about 250 um, uh, barrels per day, 250,000 barrels per day to, to feed their need. The other thing that goes on in a lot of the world, and people in Europe and the U.S. are not going to be able to relate to this, but in a lot of the world, there is no electrical grid. So if you have an office building, you have a generator sitting outside, you know, a 30, 35, 40 kilowatt generator that's typically 
fueled by diesel. Um, and so you have all these small diesel generators that provide the electricity for, for private re- residents and businesses. And that's another demand for diesel. Um, there's some demand for gasoline. It's about 29,000 barrels per day of gasoline, but diesel is the biggest thing. Um, they should be able to get there if they stay on track. And if this data is accurate, they should be able to get there in about five or six years, which is actually pretty quick. Yeah, that's good news. And that's kind of where the conclusion leaves off, which talks about how none of the the current choices are very capital intensive and they don't seem to make a lot of sense. But South Africa has shown a history of being able to diversify and and innovate. Yeah, and I'm actually glad you brought the capital up. That is the major driver. That, that's the major constraint is the capital to do these large CapEx projects. And South Africa is in a better position than a lot of the rest of Africa because there's less corruption there. And what the, the bottom line is, we were talking about this yesterday at the LNG con- um, conference about um, LNG use in um, South America. The bottom line is the companies that have the capital and the engineering prowess to build this infra- these huge infrastructure projects stay away from parts of the world that are corrupt because they don't know if they're going to get their money back. And so the more you clean up corruption in a country, the more capital investment you'll get from the big global players. And so that's, that's where you can see part of this go in South Africa. Definitely. As we're talking about all these different pipelines and in, in production and so forth, I can't help but think of our supporting sponsor that we're bidding farewell to on this episode, which is Intech Process Automation. Why don't you go ahead and talk about that a little bit? Yeah, if you're an operator, literally anywhere in the world, if you're an operator, if you have one well or if you have a thousand wells, you need to check out this paper that Intech wrote. They literally talk you through how to increase efficiencies in the field. Now, that's real important now in this low crude price environment, which, by the way, James, uh, you know where crude is today? Is it? It's definitely above 50 because you said it last week. So where is it today? It's about $52 a barrel. Oh, my okay. goodness. Yeah, you're creeping that- toward that 60 Yep. So, but anyway, but even when times are good and crude prices are high, um, increasing efficiency means you can actually increase production so you can make more money. So, Intech took the time for our audience to write this awesome paper on how, with process automation, you can increase efficiencies in the field. So, like I said, if you're an operator, one well, a thousand wells, if you're a service company that services operators, go download this paper and read through it. It will help you drive those efficiencies in the field, which helps you a lot in the low crude price environment and it'll help you in the high crude price environment as well. Where do they need to go, James? It's intechww.com forward slash podcast, intechww.com forward slash podcast. And Mark, we just have to thank them for their support of the show. Yeah. Great group of guys, um, a great company out there. You know, it's, um, um, you know, we always welcome them back to the show. Uh, Eric and his, and his team do really good stuff, and you know we really appreciate the sponsorship. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you. All right, moving over to Australia. This is really interesting because it's going to continue uh, sort of a narrative that I got going here. But Australia's LNG sector knows its enemies, but not how to fight them. It sounds like something we have a problem with in America, so let's talk about it. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Um, so basically, um, in the past... Um, uh, Australia and particularly Chevron partnered up and started building these enormous LNG facilities to liquefy natural gas. Australia has more natural gas they know what to do with. And their ability to liquefy it and then ship it to Asia Pacific is a strong business case. And so what's happening now is you're getting um, the environmental activists trying to shut some of this stuff down. The problem I have with that, the fundamental problem I have with that, 
and and you know, James, I I don't I, I try to stick to the facts. I don't get emotional. I don't get political. Um, a lot of the stuff that environmentalists like to talk about is just fundamentally wrong, right? They're misconstrued. Um, but I respect the fact that there a lot of the people in the environmental movement, their hearts are in it. They really believe they're trying to do something good, and I respect that a lot. I I, I think that's great. But the fundamental problem I have with this is that LNG impacts the environment in a positive way. We just talked about how dirty coal is. When you switch from coal to LNG, you automatically clean up the environment by 60%. And that's without doing anything else, just by switching fuel. So if I was an environmentalist, why would I have an issue with LNG? I, it makes no sense. And i tell you what it is. They're, they're trying to shut down all hydrocarbons, right? Not understanding that their cell phone they're using to, to send a Facebook update about how LNG should be opposed would not exist <laughs> without the, the hydrocarbons, right? The electricity that powers their life would not exist. And it's, it's, it's one of the things that I, you know, for the last couple of years, I've actually talked face to face with a lot of environmental activists trying to understand why they don't get it. You know, you don't see people from PETA wearing fur, but you see all the environmentalists without knowing it, supporting the oil and gas industry by consuming their products. And yet they, they rally against it. And I just, I, I, I still have yet, whenever I figured out, I'll let you know, but I still have yet figured out, but you know, this is a, a political thing in Australia, and, and as usual, um, what happens is that the uh, anti-LNG sector uses social media extremely well, and then the LNG plants don't quite know how to counter that. So that's the reason for the title of this, is they know who their enemies are, but they're not how to fight them. Yeah, and I might be talking about that at an upcoming event. I'll keep you posted. Cool. And on it, just keeping with this, because this, this narrative that I'm talking about knows that coming, coming to the home front here in America— Industry has raised more than $6 million to fight anti-fracking measures. And this is a cool article. So this is centered around Colorado, which has had some major um, losses from the oil and gas industry to the environmental movement. And James, we've got to come up with something, a different word than environmental, because environmental, they're not really concerned about the environment. They say they are. What they're really trying to do is, I guess I should call them the anti-oil and gas movement, because that's what they're really after. Well, I, I actually call them neo-pantheists. <laughs> neo-pantheists, so panth- pantheists being people that worship the earth, right? Right. And so, personally, I, I see it as more of a philosophical and theological issue. So, neo-pantheists, anti-oil and gas, either way, keep going. Yeah, so the anti-oil and gas movement in Colorado has, had, has, has, has passed some measures um, to stop fracking, and then they've, 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 they've gotten laws passed that basically made it impossible to actually produce um, oil and gas. Like one of the ones they're working on is that they, they require a 2,500-foot setback of any oil and gas development from any occupied structure or area of special concern. Now, that's public, community drinking water, lakes, rivers, uh, streams, creeks, irrigation canals, uh, farms, playgrounds, sports field, amphitheaters, public. I mean, you, what, once you pass this law, you can't drill anywhere in Colorado. Now, what happened is uh, the oil and gas industry in Colorado took a long time to figure this thing out. They were throwing big corporate marketing dollars at this, which frankly is a waste of time. And eventually certain companies, Anadarko is a great example, figured out that they need to use the same tactics tactics as the the anti-oil and gas people are using. So social media, um, talking about the facts, actually having grassroots people in the, the different counties in Colorado. Um, and so here's a group that's raised money to fight the anti-oil and gas movement, which I, I think is really cool. And they're they're doing some some cute stuff, uh, you know, from so, you know, social media and, and getting the facts out there. Um, one of the things I love that they do is that they actually, um, you know, tell people before you sign a petition, think about it, think about the progress and the prosperity and the jobs that are going to be eliminated when you sign that 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 um, 
you know, that piece of paper. And they're also doing things about um, quantifying what actually has happened. You know, you talk to any of the environmentalists and they'll all tell you how fracking pollutes drinking water. It's never happened, ever. Not once. Even the EPA, which doesn't like the oil and gas industry, could not find one instance of pollutant drinking water. Yet, you know, hundreds of incidents of pollutant drinking water in the U.S. happen every year from agriculture. So if you're really worried about drinking water, why aren't you talking to, about to the agriculture uh, community? But anyway, good article, good find. Um, and, you know, it's going to be interesting to see where this goes because Colorado is a bit of a political battleground, um, you know, because everybody's either all the way to the right or all the way to the left around oil and gas development. And the reason I wanted to bring this up, and I'm glad you talked about the social media aspect of the story, is because the industry fundamentally still does not get it. No. They don't get it. I mean, there's an example of a billboard sponsored by the oil and gas industry backed, uh, industry backed Protect Colorado. I mean, we're still using billboards and pens with logos on them and binders and, and things that, that maybe worked in 1974. And it's time for the entire industry to wake up and realize that the world has changed around us. We're, you know, you've seen some things I've written recently for some things that we're working on, and we're, we're living in a very, we're living in a contradictory times in this industry where we are on one side the most technologically advanced industry in the world, and on the other side the most digitally behind. We haven't kept pace. With we haven't kept pace with the rate of change around us, and the way that that you inform and educate people today is fundamentally different than you did in the seventies or eighties, nineties, or even the early two thousands, for that matter. Yeah, it's um, I, yeah, you and I touch this a lot. So traditionally, the oil and gas industry dumps money into um, into um, things like the API API Washington, right? So uh, big industry. Um, organizations and then API Washington takes all that money and does billboards and magazines and everything that doesn't work anymore. And I've I've actually had this conversation with people at API and and they don't get it. I actually I'm not going to say which super major it was, but it's the biggest one. I'm in conversations with them right now about this exact same thing about uh, social responsibility from a corporate point of view, and and they seem to think that their internal corporate marketing groups can handle this, and it, it can't. The way we communicate fundamentally has changed, so the way you need to get your message out there has fundamentally changed. And and I, I say we don't get it as an industry. There's some there's some outliers out there. There's uh, you know there's some companies out there that do get it, and and it's nice to see that starting to change. So I think we're in the very beginning of that. I just wish it would hurry up. Yeah, we're in the bleeding edge. We're still in the bleeding edge, and it's time. And just so I can make this real for people that are listening, Mark, I just did some quick math. Let's say that billboard costs $6 million. Let's just use the number that's in this story. It's not the, you know, but it wouldn't be out of the ordinary for... Yeah, yeah, sure. So let's say $6 million. All right, what is that billboard doing for $6 million besides sitting on the side of the road... It's not changing anybody's opinion. It's not. Not, not a and, single person. And so, and so let's just use the, the, the average. I mean, I've, I've been able to get campaigns driven traffic to websites for as low as 19 cents, you know, 35 cents. Let's just say 30 cents per visit. For $6 million, I could create a campaign that would drive 20 million visitors to a website. And think if just 10% of that 20 million, you change their opinion. Now you're making an impact. 
Like, that's exactly. Huge. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's huge, and and I'm I'm glad we had a chance to dig into this because we haven't before, and it's just something that we 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 continue need to focus on. Now we've talked a lot about different regulations coming for oil and gas as far as upstream, but very interesting article that I want to get your take on around chemical safety reform passes after perfect storm. What's going on here? Because it seems to be some downstream regulation. Uh, this is the EPA. <laughs> you know, not to get into politics, but one of the things that Donald Trump said that I really like is he's going to gut the EPA. <laughs> Somebody needs to. They have overstepped their bounds. They're, they're doing things that are not good for anybody other than um, Washington. So this is a whole article um, about the to- Toxic Substance Control Act, and it's a way for the EPA to regulate chemicals. Now, on the surface, that sounds very good, um, but it, when you start having the government regulate chemicals and they don't have the uh, the chemistry knowledge <laughs> of of what these things do, what they are, what's safe, what's not safe, then all of a sudden you have a government agency that's controlling things that can impact everybody on this planet or everybody in the country. Um, and this is like, once again, it's, it's another way for the EPA and this administration to reach out and try to add layers of cost to the oil and gas industry, which is, you know, we talked about this before, which I think is their new tactic. Since they can't go head to head, they want to add layers of, of regulations and taxes and tariffs so that eventually oil and gas is so expensive people don't want to use it, which is just horrible for, for our population, you know. So um, we're going to see what happens with this. Um, it, this is um, – it's not has not been signed into law yet. It's on Obama's desk. He's going to sign it into law, I'm sure. Um, and we'll see what happens when the next administration comes in the House. And the, here's the real problem with this. This is the real problem is that you can say the name of any benign chemical and make it sound horrible. Let's give you an example. I'm going to give you an example. Oh, my gosh. This company, they, they, they started using sodium hydro hydrogen carbonate or sodium bicarbonate, NaHCO3, they started using that in their products. You know what that is? Bacon soda. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Acetosalicylic acid. Holy shit, I don't want that in my body. That's aspirin, people. (laughs) I mean, I I could go on and on and on, but you're right, James. The general public, because they don't have a deep knowledge of chemistry, when they hear any chemical term, they go, oh, no, I don't want that. It's like, yeah. So, um, let's – I I am not a – the EPA, when it was founded, was a great organization, and it was founded for very good reasons. But it has become a political tool, and it just it it needs to be dismantled. I I testify. All right, so let's uh, let's let's jump on our soapbox one more again. O- the oil and gas industry questions whether new regulations will make drilling safer and ju- or just more expensive. It's just going to make it more expensive. Um, so this is uh, God. I'm getting upset now. So when the um, um, the BP disaster, Macondo disaster happened. Um, we and, and I know the real story. And we don't have enough time on the show, but it was a perfect storm that would be almost impossible for it to happen again. But when it did happen, um, we as an industry, the API specifically, went and did research on it. We go, okay, we know exactly what happened. Where was the breakdown? So here is our recommended recommendations to keep this from ever happening again. And that was called API Recommended Practice 75. So API RP 75. The government took that verbatim, didn't change a single word, and turn it to SIMS, which is now regulations in the, go- or, or in the U.S. when you're drilling offshore, which will prevent another Deepwater Horizon from ever happening again. So what happens now in our current administration, they want to add another layer of regulation. And here's the part that gets me. 
So when we did API RP75, it was a bunch of oil and gas people figuring out what went wrong, how to fix it. Part of this new regulation is they want to have people back in Washington monitoring wells live so they can shut them what? down. What? Did, yeah. did you just say that? Seriously. Yeah. So people outside the industry are going to be monitoring these operations. And it's like you don't know the industry, right? You're, you're, it's, it's, so in my opinion, James, actually, if this thing gets passed, it's going to make offshore less safe. Right, because there's even more things going on. Um, it's absolutely increased cost. Uh, once again, back to my earlier statement, where I think the, what they're trying to do is just keep increasing the cost. And there's no reason for this because you had industry experts already fix this problem. So um, I, you know, it, it, it's you know, it, just once again, it's an example of our of our present administration. Um, doing things that hurts the American people and, and you know drives up the cost of everything, not just your electricity and your gasoline, but everything you buy, the cost will go up because it has to be moved, has to be transported. And the cost of transporting your eggs and your bacon and whatever else is going to go up. So let's hope this thing doesn't go through. Government bureaucrats sitting in Washington monitoring oil wells makes about <laughs> as much sense as me sitting in a NASCAR pit crew making calls yeah. on, on engines that I have no idea how they operate. Yeah. So, ugh, um, ugh. yeah, it's, let's just hope this doesn't go through. I, it's, um, I, I, anyway, that's what, it, that's what this article is about. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Let's move on. Let's end on a high note here. Years in the making, workforce readies for Shell plant construction. Some good news happening up in the Philadelphia area. Yeah. So or, I'm uh, sorry, right. Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh. Yeah. Congratulations, Pittsburgh. It looks like that uh, Shell uh, Appalachia plant is going to get fired up, which means jobs everywhere. Uh, the union guys love it. Not that I'm a big union fan. The non-union guys love it. Um, it's going to bring a lot of prosperity to that part of the country. Um, a lot of jobs will be created. You have all the jobs that will be created building the the, um, the ethylene cracker. You have all the jobs that take, take to run it. And then, James, you know that part of the country, right? They were dependent on coal and steel mills for so long, and so it's had a low – the, their economy has, has not done really well in the last uh, 15 years or so. Well, here's a glimmer of hope brought to them by the oil and gas industry, particularly Shell. So hats off, Shell. And, and, I, and I have to apologize because I said Philadelphia and then I switched <laughs> to Pittsburgh. And I am going to get lynched yes. if I don't clarify that because, as Pittsburgh dad would say, the, Philadelphia, the only good thing I ever came out of there was the Constitution. Right. <laughs> so Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, y'all got y'all are getting jobs. Uh, it says here the construction workers, on average, are going to earn twenty eight dollars an hour plus, and what six thousand plus jobs. It's just it's all good stuff, really it's good all, stuff. It's all wonderful stuff, right? And so um, you know, this is a, a just a perfect example of how the free market, the oil and gas industry, and market conditions can drive prosperity for parts of the world. In this case, parts of our country um, that weren't doing so well. Yeah, and not only that, but help the help the environment as well, as far as coal versus natural gas and ethylene. But this is let's talk about what kind of plant this is, by the way, because it's an ethane cracker, right? It's ethylene cracker. Ethylene it's cracker. Basically, it's going to basically convert gas, natural gas, to plastics, um, and and these things are being stood up all over the country. Um, and it's it's there's a whole backstory here, which we don't have time to go on this show, but we're getting ready to lead the world. And the export of petrochemicals um, because we have the cheapest feedstock, we have the most efficient refineries, or in this case, ethylene crackers, and we have the cheapest transport costs because we have deep water ports on every coast. So uh, the Middle East is trying to get in this action. China's to get in this action. No, we got it in the bag. It's ours. We own this. <laughs> Unless Lock our it up. government screws it up. 
Well, darn, why did you have to throw that part into it? <laughs> All right, we got our weekly onion. Man approaches unfamiliar shower knobs like he, like he, like he's breaking a wild stallion. I, I feel that way. <laughs> easy there, easy there. Anyway, events on deck. You've got um, uh, the South Texas Oil Field Expo happening July 27th through 28th at the Henry Gonzalez Convention Center out in San Antone. So tell us about this conference, Mark. Yeah, so this is I, – I love this conference. I, I typically go every year. not quite sure if I'm going to go this year. But this is, this is where you go to meet the boots on the ground, right? The vendors there are the guys – the guy in the vendor's booth has probably been in the field for you know 20 years. Um, you get real stories, real people. People are actually doing the work out there. And it's, it's, um, it's, it's also one of the uh, oil and gas events where it is just oil and gas people. So um, they don't let anybody in unless they're from the industry. So you're there with your peers, um, and, and it, which, which just feels really good. So um, I'm going to try to make it. Not sure if I will, but if, if you're in the industry, especially if you have a product or service that is used in upstream in, in the shale plays, um, go check this thing out. And it might not be too late for you to get a booth. It's not expensive to get a booth there. And it's because it's only people in the industry, you, you get a lot of quality traffic and leads. Yeah, definitely some good interaction on the show floor there. Again, that's the South Texas Oil Field Expo happening out there in San Antonio. And then very interested about this one, Mark. I hope it's not too late to get a press pass because I really want to go. Fourth Annual Cybersecurity for Oil and Gas Expo. It's happening June. I said July before. It's actually June um, on South Texas. Sorry. All right. But um, June 27th through 29th at the Doubletree here in Houston. And I tell me about this because I think I know what it's about, but I want to hear more. Yeah, so cybersecurity and oil and gas just a few years ago was something that only the CIO and maybe the chief security officer that worked for him even understood. Now the business is understanding because it's become such a huge issue and it will continue to be a bigger issue because as we move forward and we, we go from more analog to more digital um, processes in the oil and gas industry, you have more points of entry for the bad guys. And the bad guys are no longer some bored kid in, in Jacksonville, Florida. It's people in China, some smart people sponsored by the state with some of the fastest computers you can buy trying to get financial data from the oil and gas industry. So this is a whole conference around that issue and what needs to be done to be able to protect your assets. Um, and, and yeah, James, we need to go to this. So I, I will, um, we're going to this, whether we go by press or, or, or we sneak in the back door. <laughs> <laughs> we, we just show up and we'll say, hey, we're oil and gas this week. Come on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if, if you're in that world and not just from a security, right? If, you, if you're in the business of oil and gas, you need to understand cybersecurity, at least at a high level. Um, something as simple as uh, taking a, a thumb drive from a vendor and plug it to your computer could compromise your entire company. So if you're, if you're, if you're interested in this stuff, go to the show. Um, if you're in oil and gas and you're in the business, you need to go check this out because this is something new that you need to learn. Yeah, it, that, I was thinking that because it's the fourth. So it's still in its earliest stages. I'm looking at the speakers here. Roberta Jones, Senior VP, Business Process Improvement and CIO at Boardwalk Pipeline Partners. Jamie Cutler, VP and CIO at QEP Resources. You've got Chris Ship, Chief Information Security Officer um, for the Department of Energy, actually. And then Michael Lewis, External Requirement Analyst, analyst for Chevron got some people from Baker Hughes and it's, it's something that a couple people from the department under you, you got to go to this. I think, let, let me tell you, there's a group here that I cannot remember the name of here in Houston and it's sponsored by the FBI 
and you cannot get in this group unless you pass the FBI background check, but it's the FBI working with oil and gas industries to stay on top of cybersecurity. That's how big an issue it is, that the FBI has an office here just to work with oil and gas. Oh, man. They're going to find my DJ profile and shut me down. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's talk about the first Friday Q&A because it's four weeks away. Yeah, come on, people. You got questions? Fire them up. Get them, get them, get them to us. We, uh, we, we've had some great questions and continually get great questions. If you want to know anything about the oil and gas industry, um, it doesn't matter whether it's process or production or people, reach out. And if we use your question, uh, we'll give you a big shout out in the air. Definitely. That You can go submit your questions at tribrocket.com forward slash QA. And I will continue to beg for your voicemails. And then we've got a LinkedIn group that happens to be growing, Mark. Yeah, it's um so so before we go there, let me uh, stop because we talked earlier about our live event that we're going to pull off in July. That has been moved to September, but it is absolutely happening. And why did we move it to September? Let's just clarify that. Because so many people go on a vacation and it's the summer, and we want this to be a high quality, fun, valuable event. Now it's going to be extremely exclusive. We're looking at only letting thirty five people in. So if you want to go, and we're going to do a live podcast, we'll take questions from the audience, we're going to have great food, we're going to have alcohol. Um, <laughs> alcohol it, is always a strong seller. Yeah, and it's in a really cool um, um, historic uh, factory type setting. Um, so it's, it's just going to be an awesome event. It's going to be quality. We're only letting 35 people in, and we're going to announce it first on the LinkedIn group. So if you want to get in, if nothing else, go join the LinkedIn group so you have the biggest chance, the greatest odds of getting in. But you should also join the LinkedIn group because that's where we're going to announce all of our future shows. And we got a bunch of shows in the works that we're not going to talk – we can't talk about now, but um, some really, really great stuff. And we have shows where it's not going to be me and James. It'll be me and somebody else or James and somebody else or maybe two other people that aren't either James and I. And all that's going to be on the LinkedIn group. Plus, on top of all that, which is reason enough for you to join, it's a great place for you to get feedback from your peers. It's it's our family, right? It's our all-gas family. So if you need help with something, you have a question, you put it there and somebody will help you out. So go join the LinkedIn group. Yeah, trybracket.com forward slash LinkedIn. Mark, I have great news in that we got two five-star reviews I can't wait to read. Uh, the bad news is that we're still not at 100, so we still have to talk about reuse. We didn't get to 100. Come on, people. We got over 100 and some odd thousand downloads, and I can't get eight more uh, reviews. We need these reviews, right? You heard us on the show. Um, um, Michael Fry is chasing us. He thinks he's number one. We got to make sure we stay ahead of him. Um, so, you know, help us, help us, help us. Leave us a review. It helps us uh, climb the search into rankings and iTunes. Um, and it's also a way, if you don't like what we're doing or if you have a suggestion for something else or you have some feedback, you don't have to leave us a five-star review. Just leave us a review. Yeah, leave us a review. One, four, three, whatever you've got. We'd love to hear the feedback. And so let's get into some feedback here. So from Texas Mineral Man, best oil and gas podcast out there. I'm a landman in Texas and can't begin to tell you how many times I've brought up this podcast with coworkers and clients when discussing various issues and events currently impacting this great industry. Thank you. Thank you, sir, for sharing the show. If you're not staying up to speed with what's going on around you, you're going to get left behind. Employers look for and keep people who will add value to operations. This is exactly what this podcast does. It will add value, add to your value by making you a more knowledgeable and well-rounded oil and gas professional who is better equipped to step out in the field and make a difference. Man. Yeah, what a great review. That's awesome. Thank you so much. I need to hire him to write some copy for me. I'm telling you. <laughs> All right. And then from uh, uh, C-A-K, so C-A, Cat Creeps, I'm not, anyway, five stars, <laughs> um, great 
positive outlook. I'm relatively new to podcasts. Welcome, welcome to the technology of podcasting. I'm relatively new to podcasts and look forward to this each week as well as the .5 episodes. And that's the first time we got a shout out of .5, so thank you for that. I'm an executive with four out of my eight companies that have a high exposure to oil and gas markets across the spectrum from up, mid, and downstream. These companies grew very rapidly from 2004 through 2014 with a slight pause in 2009. We all seem to forget about the money that was made and subsequently reinvested in other assets such as people, equipment, and new businesses in that decade. Thanks for keeping positive on the industry and using facts and data to counter opinion and conjecture. It's just like any other market such as defense and automotive. If you go, quote, all in, with one single industry, your risk is high for cyclical impact. We have to keep positive as the professionals in this industry are some of the best in the world and need to be kept motivated through the downturn. Otherwise, we will come out the other side with lesser capabilities and will require government subsidies to exist, much like wind and solar dudes. <laughs> yeah, that, that's not going to happen here. But nah. I, I love the way you're thinking about yeah. this. Keep up the positive notes on what is going on, uh, going well in a market downturn to recover stronger. Man, two phenomenal, phenomenal reviews. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Mark, I'm curious to hear um, some of your thoughts on, on, that last, on that last review because you've been in this industry long enough to know the history that he's talking about there. Yeah, so th this is the fourth downturn I've been through. This one actually is not as bad as some of the other ones. Um, um, it's, it's, so what he said is going to happen. When we come out of this and the price of crude comes up, we, we, we have lost some talent that's not going to be replaced, that can't be replaced. Um, and it's one of the things that really worries me about our industry long-term-wise, and we've talked about this in other shows. Now, fortunately, there's a bunch of very smart young people out there busting butt trying to get a handle on this problem. So you know, I, I have a lot of hope for this, but we, we, we have lost talent that, that's, that you can't replace. Um, now, is it a big enough issue that it's going to hurt the industry as a whole? I don't know yet. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. And we'll have to leave that for a future episode as we could keep doing this all day. But we have another show to record. So as far as oil and gas this week is concerned, Mark mentioned you need to read that story about Lexology because it's a game changer. And if you want to read that story, dig into any of the other links. You can find them all in the show notes at triberocket.com forward slash TW68. You can also leave any comments or questions you have about this episode there. It's triberocket.com forward slash TW68. And Mark, can you get them to share the show with their friends? Yeah, come on, people. It's um, do that mass email thing everybody hates, where you, you send our show to everybody <laughs> in the company. <laughs> and if you don't want to do that, if you uh, if you want to share it on uh, LinkedIn, it's basically triberocket.com forward slash share li. You want to share it on Twitter, it's uh, same thing, share uh, tw, and on Facebook, it's share fb. All right, let's get going, Mark. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Go find some grease, guys.
James, you still there? <laughs> 